So first, all of us want to thank you for your practice. Your sincerity and your dedication are really apparent. It's quite palpable. It's really heartwarming and very, very inspiring. So thank you very much for your practice. As Gina mentioned last night, the theme of this retreat is the beauty of transformation. And so on the very basic level of our humanness, this transformation, in in terms of the Dharma too, is about transforming ignorance to wisdom, transforming hatred to loving-kindness and understanding, transforming greed to generosity, or you might say holding on, transforming holding on to letting go. So it's quite basic for all of us. So on this retreat, what we wanted to do in terms of the, the means for that transformation is to put light on the paramis. Paramis are those forces of mind, those wholesome forces of mind and heart. By the way, when we mention mind, we also mean heart. It's the same thing, mind and heart. Those forces of the heart, of the mind, that lead us from suffering to peacefulness, to happiness. They're great forces within us that we really... um, need to give more time to, give, put more light on. Because transformation isn't an easy process. And as we transform, we need to face a lot of suffering. And a lot of our lives are turned towards that suffering, of course. As we turn towards that suffering we uh, develop quite naturally, if we put our intention there, we quite naturally develop the paramis. So transformation requires us to open to what is difficult, which, of course, we can't help but do in our practice in a retreat like this where we we learn the skills and we carry those skills home with us. So we open to what is difficult in the immediate context of our families, of our communities, and of course for us people of color on the level of society and all of that we open to there, feelings, inward feelings of inequality, separation, and the various levels of um, ignorance that we have to face over and over again in our society. This is the truth of how it is. It's also the truth that we need to include among uh, that opening, opening to the feelings that we have around that. Because I find in my own life that a lot of it has been, a lot of my energy has been used in facing what is happening uh, on a community level, on a society level, and I value the time when I can just turn my attention inward and touch those places of pain and hurt uh, that have been 
opened up during my lifetime, as all of you are in the same situation. So I know how grateful we're, we all are to be able to do that, uh, to be able to be here in a place where we can have some level of security, some level of, of feeling that we're protected, and we're doing the very best we can to do that. So going back to the paramis, the wholesome forces of mind already within us, in this retreat, all of our Dharma talks will be centered around the paramis. Of course, as we bring them up, we'll have to open to the suffering, which is the other side of that, uh, the beautiful uh, states of mind. Those are actually developed by opening to the difficult states of mind. Like you, when I came to retreat, like many of you, maybe not all of you, when I came to do retreats, I always thought that I'm coming here so I can open to what is beautiful within me. I can open to the beauty of the Dharma, to bliss, and to all those other words that uh, you know are just kind of one-sided. And I realized very quickly that if I want to open, I have to be willing to open not just to what is pleasant, not just to what is to my liking, to what I would uh, you know, feel comfortable about, but I also need to be willing to open to what's uncomfortable, to what's unpleasant. Because otherwise it would just be opening you know, just at least half or maybe not even that much of my, uh, of who I am in this world. So the, the paramis, I'm going to just name them all now, and um, as we go along, they'll be repeated. Generosity, morality or harmonious living, renunciation, wisdom, energy, Patience, truthfulness, resolution, loving kindness, equanimity. These are the ten forces that carry us across the, the ocean of tears, so to speak. So since we are practicing mindfulness here, and this is our meditation tonight, I'd like to talk about mindfulness and how that connects us to wisdom one of the paramis, in an ever-deepening way. So starting out with a a quote from uh, a Sayadaw, a teacher, a spiritual teacher from Burma, Sayadaw Utejaniya. Wisdom inclines towards the good, but it is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the difference between skillful and unskillful, and it clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful. So this is one definition of wisdom, and there are varying degrees of it, actually. This is just one level of understanding wisdom. 
I like to start with wisdom in the paramis because it's good to acknowledge that it has taken actually quite a bit of wisdom for all of us to come here, wisdom and courage and compassion, for all of us to come here to open our hearts fully, to open our minds fully, to learn the skills that we need to learn in order to do that. It takes some wisdom to turn the mind towards suffering in a way that doesn't flinch, that doesn't uh, freeze up, that doesn't push it away, that doesn't run away from it. It takes a lot of wisdom to do that. And we all have it because we're here. Every single one of us has a good measure of it already. But in order for wisdom to recognize what leads to harmony and what leads to disharmony so that it can incline towards peace, it can incline towards happiness and what the causes of happiness are, we need the skill of mindfulness, which we are learning here. We need the skill to open to the present moment just as it is, because it is said, and we know from our own practice as we go along, that the present moment is the only moment that contains ever-deepening levels of wisdom. It's not by thinking of the past. It's not by conjuring up the future. It's not really by reading a book or by hearing it, although it's those things support our own understanding but it's really by learning how to open to the present moment in a skillful way. So it's said that mindfulness, our teachers would always say, mindfulness brings us step by step to wisdom, step by step to the highest. So this is our path of practice, mindfulness. In the ancient texts, It's called the inner mentor because one of its manifestations is protection. It's like this inner protection that, as Utejaniya said, knows what is skillful and what leads to that, knows what is unskillful and what leads to that. It protects us from harming ourselves It protects us from harming others. So these are the two great areas of protection, protecting ourselves from harming with greed, hatred, and delusion that come up in our own hearts and protecting us from harming others. Uh, So it's this trustworthy inner guide that we're all getting in touch with more and more It said that it is the cause and condition for immediate and far-reaching results. So I'd like to read to you one of the... um, In the Satipatthana Sutta, this is the discourse on the foundations of mindfulness. And these are the words of the Buddha. Where he talks about, in this particular passage, the seven benefits of the practice of mindful meditation, mindfulness. So he's addressing the bhikkhus. A bhikkhu is someone 
like Bhante here, um, um, monastic, but it can mean anyone who sees danger. Bhikkhus, the Buddha said, this is the direct way, the direct path for the purification of mind, the first benefit, for the overcoming of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, and for the realization of the unconditioned. Sometimes we hear the word nirvana, or in the Pali it's nibbana, the unconditioned. So these are the seven benefits, and sometimes I, I've seen them as I've gone through my own life and seen others who have practiced in this way. I've seen the benefits manifested in my own life, in the lives of others. So I've actually come to see them more as promises, promises of the Buddha. So in the West, we use the word vipassana to describe this path of practice. A lot of times we hear mindfulness, and much of the time we hear the word vipassana to identify this practice. So I think Gina mentioned also last night that vipassana means insight into the true nature of reality, the true nature of all phenomena. So this vipassana actually is the result of our practice. When we say vipassana, we're talking about the seven benefits that come, the deepening understanding that comes, the wisdom that comes from doing our practice. When I'm uh, practicing in Burma with uh, one of our teachers, I'm reminded over and over again, but that that vipassana is actually an incomplete rendering of the description of this practice and that we need to use the word satipatthana. So it's actually satipatthana vipassana. That's the description of our practice. So tonight, by going through what that means, satipatthana vipassana, And also one last, the third word is bhavana. Bhavana means uh, actually the coming forth, the bringing forth of that understanding. So what does satipatthana mean when we break it down? And this helps us to understand what we're doing here. Um, There's a saying that I heard from someone, if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. So it, I don't know about you, but I, I really have to know not just you know where I'm going, but where I'm coming from, because that's in order for it to be a complete map, we need to see both places. And um, so it helps to know what we're doing here in this practice. It's not just about blanking out or being still. It's about developing insight, developing wisdom by the stilling of the mind, by the clarity that the mind comes to because of that stilling, by the seeing more deeply into the nature of reality because of many of those factors and many more. 
So sati, the first part of the word satipatthana, is often translated simply as mindfulness. But as our teacher Upandita says, it's, this is an incomplete rendering of that word because it's not an ordinary kind of mindfulness that gets us through the day, that helps us cross the street, chop the vegetables, raise our children, help our grandchildren, get through school, uh, balance the checkbook, which I really never learned how to do anyway. Um, this sati is a kind of extraordinary power. It's not the everyday kind of mindfulness that we're just mindful of uh, being in our everyday lives in a general way. Of course, that's very important to have this general mindfulness. But this kind of satipatthana that brings us to the seven benefits and seeing clearly into the nature of life is an extraordinary power that not only brings us face-to-face with the present moment, but is able to pierce the present moment in such a way that the revealing of truth happens. The revealing of the deepest truth happens in that way. So that's that's the far goal where we're headed. And it's a a step-by-step practice for us. So sati means to remember. It signifies presence of mind. A better translation for sati is not really mindfulness. It's observing power. Observing power. It's like a scientist just uh, observing what's happening, like bringing a mirror and doing research on what's going on without adding anything to it, without... Uh, having any opinions about it. So this is from uh, a Taoist philosopher, Chuang Su, talks about the mirror. The perfect woman uses her mind as a mirror. It clings to nothing. It refuses nothing. It receives but does not keep So sometimes this sati is called the mirror of mindfulness in some of the ancient texts. One of our great Tibetan uh, masters, Dilgo Kinse Rinpoche, uh, made some comments about how mindfulness turns our attention, opens to deep wisdom. He said it in these ways. You can think of mindfulness like a mirror with different powers. The power to reflect in precise detail whatever comes before it. This is the mirror-like wisdom of mindfulness. The fundamental lack of any bias towards any impression. This is the equalizing wisdom of mindfulness. The ability to distinguish clearly without confusing it in any way with other phenomena. This is the discerning wisdom of mindfulness. Its openness and vastness, which opens to compassionate wisdom. 
So this kind of mindfulness opens to whatever is happening, observes without interfering. So this is what we're learning how to do here, to just bring a mirror to what's going on in the mind and the body and bring that observing power without interfering in any way, without suppressing it, without any agenda or goal, without commenting, without embellishing, without comparing, without trying to put it into any previous other framework, which we often compare. Oh, this is what I learned here, and it's, it's good. I might remind you, as has been reminded, uh, give, we have been given the reminder many times, when we take in a teaching to put everything aside, to put all other frameworks aside for the time being so that the mind can freshly take in whatever is being offered without comparing it because that will only diminish what we've already learned and uh, dilute what is being taken in. So without trying to place it into other traditions, without trying to fix anything, without trying to change anything about the present moment experience. I always um, remember another one of our teachers and the way that he would give instructions. um, He would say, uh, this is Anagarika Munindra, he would say, please bring your attention to the breath and then any other predominant object that arises without comparing, without condemning, without judging, without commenting, just bringing clear attention moment to moment to whatever is happening. And so in, even in the instructions, we're often reminded not to bring anything else to the moment except for the mirror, the clear mirror of mindfulness. So that's what sati means. And pa, what does pa mean in satipatthana? It means close. It means steadfast. It means over and over again, kind of like a, a continuity of attention without break. So it, it's not always easy to practice with some of our uh, teachers. But, and um, in the moment when I'm practicing, I, I don't quite like it, actually, but <laughs> because there's a lot of strictness and a lot of... Um, uh, it's really hard sometimes, and sometimes we'd go in to report, and and we'd think we'd have this great report, you know, moment-to-moment mindfulness, and then the teacher would say, please try harder. There are too many gaps, you know, like there's not enough steadfastness. So luckily, we're not requiring that of you, <laughs> um, but we're learning how to do that here in a, in a more gentle way um, with our practice, how to bring that gentle, steadfast attention to our experience. So it calls for this intimacy with ourselves. And that's the beauty of being here in this kind of setting, is that we have this opportunity to get really close to what's been going on with us for a long, long time, 
And for many of us, we might have the understanding of lifetimes that we have a chance to take a look at, to be close to, to touch with that gentle, clear mindfulness. So that's satipa. And tana means the four objects of mind, the objects of mindfulness that we place this steadfast, close, intimate attention to. So we'll be going over them throughout our time here together, but I just want to put them in um, some basic categories. We'll be coming to experience with mindfulness the body and the various sensations in the body, hopefully without overlaying too much of, you know, this is my body, but just seeing the moment of pain just as it is, the moment of bliss feeling in the body just as it is. So various sensations in the body, feelings like pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feelings, quite simple, just like that. States of mind, moods of the mind that we uh, feel or experience because um, connected with our thinking process sometimes. Objects of mind, mental objects of mind, for example, the hindrances. I just want to highlight the hindrances in this last category. We'll become very aware of sleepiness, of restlessness, of aversion, of attachment, and of doubt, the five hindrances, which we'll come to see more and more clearly um, and will offer more and more instruction on during our morning sittings at 8.15. So we have this opportunity to become very, very intimate with what's going on within us. Somebody said today in one one of my interviews, one of the group check-ins that she experienced something so close, never before experienced, that was very poignant and sweet. Um, And I I wouldn't know how it would be in her own mind and heart, but when I go back and reflect on the experiences I've had uh, of just feeling the eyes blink, never before putting that much attention on it. Feeling a place in me of blaming, where the attention has always been the object of the blame, but feeling that inside of me. Feeling hurt when a lot of my attention has been around the issue of being hurt. But now bringing this compassionate attention to the actual experience of it. It's very, very powerful to be able to do that, to be able to experience that clearly. Only in the present moment can that be done. There may be experiences of the past which we remember, which in the moment we feel hurt about. That's the present moment. So, there's this, um, there's this van that goes around where I live in Hawaii. And uh, it says, the most beautiful part of Maui, where I live, is underwater. And so one time, when my partner first moved to Maui, um, I thought I would take him 
snorkeling to see what's going on underwater. And it, it is truly beautiful under the water. Sometimes we, we look and we think, you know, we just see kind of the grayness. We might see the ocean as beautiful as a whole and the waves and all of that. But actually to go underneath is quite astounding. It's quite an investigation. So I tell this story because it's kind of like a metaphor for what we go through when we're meditating and when we're on the path of kind of going beneath the surface of things. So I took him on this journey um, out over some lava fields, and it's where the last lava fields were poured by the latest volcanic eruptions about 300 years ago in, uh, on Maui. And it, it looks like somebody just went out and poured this asphalt all over, you know, thousands of square uh, acres of land. It's bleak and it's hot. And in Hawaiian, that lava is called a'a because when you walk on it, the Hawaiians named it a'a because that's what you say. Ah, 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 you know, it, and it can be really hot. So I took um, my partner, Steve, there, and um, he, gave, he always gives me permission to say this because I give him permission for certain things to say about me, which aren't so nice. But <laughs> uh, he's an aversive type. So um, we have these different types, you know, in the Buddhist kind of psychology of understanding there's aversive type, there's greedy type, which I am, and there's a deluded type. And somewhere along the line, you'll learn, you'll understand about that. But it's really nice to know, you know, what kind of type you are because, and you share it with your friends because, um, just as an aside, because then we don't take it so personally. Um, so my partner's an aversive type and he makes all these faces and so we're walking across the ah-ah, and he's making a lot of faces, you know. And you have to walk um, about a mile to get from the road to this lagoon that I'm taking him to where you can go under the water and you can snorkel. And so we start out, and we have to park far away, of course, and then we get on the lava rock, and we get lost, of course, because the path is hard to see when you're not paying attention, Right. So we're not watching real well, and we go this way instead of that way. So we finally turn back, and we go on the right road, and it's bleak, and it's hot, and it's very uncomfortable, and lots of unpleasant mind states come. And there's a lot of complaining along the way. And there's a lot of, when will we get there? You know, And then finally... After walking about a half an hour, we get to this place that we call the aquarium. And it's this lagoon where there's a little part of it open to the ocean, and there's this, um, there's this place probably twice as big as this hall that is actually the body of water. And when we get there, it's, um, it's kind of gray. It doesn't look very inviting, actually. And... Uh, you know, you can see a lot of rocks, and there's not a lot of sand around. And so he, he says, all that walking for this, you know? <laughs> so understanding the aversive nature, just, okay, well, when he gets in the water, he'll really see, you know? So um, he 
trudges out there, puts his snorkels on, and then he he steps in water that's only less than his uh, knee deep. He's kind of a tall guy. And he gets in the knee deep water and he's, he starts to put with his uh, snorkel and his um, headgear on, he puts, he, he puts his face in the water and right away, I just will never forget his head going up and his hair with all the water going back. And he says, oh my God, this is beautiful. There are fish with many, many colors, the beauty of the, the coral that's in that area, of the, the fish that are swimming around, the different creatures, the seaweed and all, just underneath the surface of things. Of course, some things are very unfamiliar looking, but there's beauty in this unfamiliarity. Some things are moving a lot, and, and we go to a place where it takes to be still, actually, in that place, takes a lot of little gentle movements of our own just to be still, as we do on our sitting cushion. And there's a lot of times when we open to things underneath the surface of things, like in this lagoon, where it's scary, like there's holes in rocks where eels pop their heads out of, you know, and you can see their little fangs sometimes. And there's areas when we go further out and past the lagoon where there's turtles. And sometimes when we go beyond into the ocean where there's other things like um, tiger sharks, you know, that usually don't hurt anybody. And so we face a lot when we open to the beauty of what's underneath. But as we're able to face that, we gain more and more skill. We know more and more skillfully how to be still in the face of unfamiliar objects, unfamiliar experiences, how to be unflinching so that there's this ability to see it in all of its beauty, in all of its changing nature. And so what we do here is go into that unimaginable, fascinating place of our minds and our hearts and our bodies where we can be intimate in a way that we have never been before. And when we've practiced a long time, we know that it's infinite how deep we can go. When we think we've gotten there, we again open to places where it's so big, it's so infinite. And the possibility to be close to all of that in a way we've never been before is unimaginable. And so what we do in our practice here is we open to every experience that we have as a human being. And that's what the four foundations of mindfulness comprise. Everything that we are as human beings. Experiences of the body, experiences of the mind. The Buddha said that if the four foundations of mindfulness are repracticed persistently and repeatedly, 
the factors of enlightenment will be automatically and fully developed. And so persistent, repeated, steadfast are the really key words. Continuity, that means, all of that means continuity. Continuity in our practice is always highlighted when we do our own practices. That's why our teachers would say, you know, please, no gaps. Of course, there are many gaps in our mindfulness, but I, the way I look at it, if I reach for the stars, I might only get to the top of the trees, but you know what? That's good enough sometimes. So it's not in a rigid way, but a very gentle, persevering effort way that we do that. So satipatthana means this extraordinary, and our teacher says high quality, highest quality, powerful, observing power. Patana means steadfast energy on the object, on the foundations of mindfulness. So that the in the observing of the present moment, which satipatthana brings us to, it reveals the knowledge of the nature of phenomena. So that nature of phenomena is how everything is impermanent, the unsatisfactory nature of it all, the conditional or empty nature of it all. So I know those three things are kind of abstract to us sometimes, but actually when we practice, we see it. It is seen very closely. And bhavana, in satipatthana, bhavana means to bring that all forth. So in in recent years, um, now that my own children are grown and they have their own families, uh, there's been a strong urgency on my part to clean up my act more. And so when when we become more and more conscious, it, it opens us to more and more areas of where we're not so conscious, where we need some work. And it's hard, but I really can appreciate that. So I'd been going in the last years back uh, to see my own living teacher now, the one that's living in Burma. And um, he's getting older, and so I, I try to go where he is as much as I can. And every time I go, it's harder and harder. The body's getting older, but really the skills that get developed are able to be with that difficulty more and more. Sometimes I can't, but I see over the years there's more and more balance and strength in that. So one of the first times that I began going there this teacher, Sayadaw Upandita, said, why are you here? And I answered him, I'm here to clean up my heart more. And he said, and he put it in a very interesting way, he said, then you must be willing to invest everything you have in the practice. And of course, I, I knew he didn't mean anything material or financial, but to invest whatever skills were already developed, whatever qualities of mind and heart 
could come forth, could be brought forth to bring to the present moment the spiritual strengths, basically, of all the paramis. So whatever is needed at the time, loving kindness, patience, equanimity, forbearance, perseverance, renunciation, and this effort, this persevering, gentle, moment-to-moment effort. One of the things I've learned from that teacher is that the closest support in his eyes, and according to the Buddha too, for mindfulness to arise is ardent, balanced effort. So one of the closest supports to mindfulness is this kind of continuity which we can have in our practice. It's the effort not to um, be with many moments at a time, but just with this moment. So it's small moments many times, over and over again. It says that there are two manifestations of sati that are supported by this steadfast, close effort. And those two manifestations are coming face-to-face with the object of our practice, whether it's the breath or feelings or sensations in the body or mind states. And the second manifestation is protection. So I want to talk about these two briefly. Coming face-to-face with the object of our attention, of mindfulness. So basically, we're always reminded that in order to do this, it has to be without any agenda. Without an agenda to fix it, to be rid of it. Sometimes we're mindful so that it will, it will go away. And so this is not a correct way of practicing. Sometimes we're mindful in order to fix it. Um, sometimes, you know, we want to be right about uh, what we're handling, what we're doing. A lot of times we have stories about what's going on. But mindfulness is all about going beneath the storyline. And that's a big thing that I've had to learn along the way. It's not about my story. It's about what's feeding that story. Is it sadness? Is it hurt? Is it anger? Is it blame? Is it feeling guilty? So it's, it's going beneath the storyline. And, and we help each other with that. We'll help you with that. So it means being with whatever's happening, just that, nothing more. I always like to read from the Buddha because um, I always feel he can say things a lot better than I can. So I want to read you his way of being mindful. When someone came to him and asked him to give a teaching uh, on mindfulness, on, uh, on liberation through mindfulness, this was one of his disciples, and this disciple's name was Bahia. And so this is called the Bahia Sutta. So he responded to this disciple, O Bahia, whenever you see a form 
let there just be the seeing. Whenever you hear a sound, let there just be the hearing. When you smell an odor, let there just be the smelling. When you taste a flavor, let there just be the tasting. When a thought arises, let it be just a natural phenomena arising in the mind. When you practice like this, there will be no self, no I. When there is no self, there will be no running that way and no coming this way and no stopping anywhere. That is the end of dukkha. That itself is nibbana. So it's this coming face to face with whatever's happening without an agenda, just feeling the feeling within the feeling, experiencing the sensation within the sensation. So, like all of you, or many of you, I don't know about all of you, but storylines and stories are like vicious vortexes that go over and over and over again. When that happens, when we have a repetition of a particular storyline, it's really helpful to come back to the body and to ask ourselves, what can I be mindful of that's happening in the body right now? So I just wanted to give something helpful to you because always at the beginning of the retreat, along with sleepiness and restlessness, our storylines come. And uh, it always helps to touch base with the body. What am I feeling in the body? Sometimes the storyline is about anger and there's a feeling of hotness. Sometimes the storyline is about fear and there's a feeling of contraction somewhere in a bodily sense. So, again, we'll, we'll always give you reminders about that, each one of us with each one of you. So when that happens, I remember to come back to the body and with a strong energy, that strong connecting energy that's the pa of sati patana, and feel the experience of the body very, very directly below the storyline to get really intimate with it, to connect with that so that it doesn't um, kind of hook me Get, uh, get me running away with, uh, with that. And then eventually that internal dialogue begins to calm down, begins to not be so like a vicious vortex, a cycle of things happening over and over again. This is from Carlos Castaneda. Whenever the internal dialogue stops, the extraordinary facets of ourselves surface as though they had been kept heavily guarded by our words. We'll see how that happens when the words can kind of part like the rivers parting and we can feel what's going on underneath those words. It's a very, sometimes hard, but very poignant, very powerful moment to be able to feel that very directly. 
where we're not feeling ashamed to feel that, where we're not covering it up with any rationalization. It's just that experience within the experience. Just mirroring it face to face. It's said that mindfulness has no shame. It's willing to open up what has been hidden and to be there with it like a friend, like a a protector, like a mentor. When the mirror of mindfulness reflects over and over again what's going on beneath the surface of things, a spaciousness of mind begins to happen. And so this is what Upandita calls one of the states of mind called beautiful. This kind of spaciousness, this kind of... That spaciousness can be discovered as equanimity, another one of the paramis that Gina will talk about later. We discover a very pure kind of energy, which uh, Larry will talk about. Uh, And we can discover the goodness of our hearts, um, which uh, Bhante will talk about, the very natural way for us to incline towards harmlessness. Because when mindfulness is with the objects that are coming up over and over again, in time, mindfulness becomes stronger than the hindrances. Mindfulness becomes stronger than any of the objects that it faces. And so the the power and the spaciousness of that mirror begins to be experienced in great depth. So that's about uh, the first part of mindfulness. And the second part is manifestation of protection. This is a really important part of the manifestation of mindfulness Because in its purest sense, protection means protection from the kilesas or the defilements of the mind that have come through habit over and over again. And the mind is protected through mindfulness. One of our... um, Elders, a German monk who lived in Sri Lanka for many, many years and translated uh, the teachings of the Buddha for us from Pali into English. He says this about mindfulness. Fearlessly, mindfulness questions old habits often grown meaningless, uncovers its roots, and helps abolish all that is seen to be harmful. So we begin to see the way that leads to disharmony more clearly. We begin to see the way that leads to harmony more clearly also. We open to what is harmful because mindfulness brings in the courage to open to that.
So on a profound level, we come to see that in our practice. And when we come to see that in ourselves, we carry that out into the world. And we become greater agents of peace and compassion, clear seeing in the world because we've learned that with ourselves. And then our work in the world is stronger. It has more of a, a clear and lasting impact. So if we keep this thread of mindfulness woven and continuous as continuous in a gentle way as we can here, it'll be easier to take it home with us. It'll be easier to be mindful in our daily lives. It'll be easier to see the path that leads to the beautiful places in our hearts, the beautiful places in the world. We'll live better will die better. I'd like to end with um, this poem by William Stafford from the book, The Way It Is. And the title of this is Your Life. You will walk towards the mirror, closer and closer, then flow into the glass. You will disappear someday like that, being more real, being more true at the last. So let's sit for a moment and let the words fade. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.